Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today for our episode, we're looking at education in the first century. So Scott, you know, as we talk about what education was really like in the first century, I think a lot of us in the 21st century, of course, have the the backdrop and, and idea of what we grew up with, with public education, you know, everybody going through grammar school and then, you know, most through junior high and high school and on to college. Um, but I don't. that certainly wasn't the case in the first century. So uh, just to get started, you know, what do we need to know more than anything about education in the first century? Century. Um, I think the first thing we should we should know that we need to know is that we don't know as much as we'd like to know, and that uh, sort of puts a uh, a dark cloud over the sun rays under the sun rays between us and the sun on this topic. So I, I like to talk about education in the first century Jewish world. Uh, which is different than the Greco-Roman world. Um, I like to put it in the sort of maximal views versus the minimal views. The maximal views would be uh, taken from evidence in the Roman world and the Greek world, and then from later Jewish evidence from the Talmud. And, and it would look like this, that that um, that Jews in the diaspora could have partaken, could have, not necessarily did, could have partaken in a public education system. Well, I shouldn't say it there. Not in a public education system in in our sense where everybody could go. Education at best in the Roman Empire was for the elite. It was for citizens, for freedmen and their children. It would not have been for all. And it would have focused on some of the basics. Um, it would have focused on learning to read. It would have le- focused eventually on developing a skill in rhetoric. So you find a lot of education emphasizing rhetoric, which is education designed to produce lawyers and public debaters and politicians, which already gives you an indication that this is not for everybody. Mm-hmm. So education in the Roman world was elitist. It was for civic purposes. Um, it, it, was, it was not really a public education system. In the Jewish world, let's say where Jesus grew up, if we take a maximal view, and I don't adhere to the maximal view, either in Rome or Greece, let, let's just think in, in Athens, the wealthy people could afford but the farmers out in the countryside, the fishermen up the coast, uh, they weren't so concerned about their kids learning uh, how to read Homer or Cicero. So let's just say in the, in the first century Jewish world, a maximal view would be that boys, not girls, girls were not given uh, education. Uh, they would have learned from their mothers and other women. But boys would have gone in a maximal view, and I don't think this happened. From 6 to 10, they would have learned Torah. From 11 to 13, they would have learned oral Torah that becomes Mishnah and Talmud. But I think it's far more likely that in the first century world, there is 
precious little evidence for any kind of public education in Galilee uh, or in Jerusalem. There, are, there, is, there is some evidence, but it is not widespread. It could not be said that everybody sent their kids to school. But, so, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it seems you know, as you break down the, the two differences between the Roman and the more you know, Jewish route uh, of education, the you know, Jewish route was for people to be able to read and understand the Torah, that that's why it was important for them to be able to, to read and possibly even write um, versus the more elite type of Roman way to, to look at it as being just for, for those who are going to hold public office and have more significant roles in society. But, but Chaz, uh, the, the evidence is not, all this, all this stuff is this, we, we don't know as much as we'd like to know. Yeah. One of the okay. standard books on, on this is by a guy named uh, W.V. Harris, and he's written a book called Jewish Literacy, mm. or Ancient Literacy. Mm-hmm. And he argues that only 10% of Jews could read. Fewer would be able to write than read. But let's just say that that's right. Now, I think that the tendency today is to raise that number. There's been some new studies. And our president at Northern, uh, William Scheel, is actually involved with some people who are involved in this study Hmm. of uh, discovering more and more about education and reading. But let's just say a maximum of 15 to 20 percent of Jewish males could read. Much fewer much lower percentage for women. Here's what happens in education. Um, Just imagine that you live on the prairie in the 18th century or the 19th century in the United States, and you've moved into a village, and there's there's no, you you might want to start a school, but let's just say you'd live too far from anybody else because you've got a farm So therefore, you have to educate. This is more a first century phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It was the father's responsibility to teach his sons knowledge of the Torah and how to practice the Torah. And this would take place in in a semi-formal way, but also in very casual, common ways of learning to live together and fathers instructing children and sons as they went along. Mothers would have been involved in instructing daughters in in womanly ways in the first century. Uh, Fathers would have been instructing their daughters in basics of how to know the Torah. So it was the father. It was in the home. It was about the Torah. Jews did not read Homer, I mean, as a rule, in, in, in the Palestine. They are the Holy Land. They did not read Homer. They did not read the Iliad. Uh, they did not read Virgil. Their their Old Testament for us is the Old Testament. That's mm-hmm. what they learned, and that's that was their source of education. In addition to the home, the synagogue would become or synagogue gatherings on uh, on the Sabbath would have been involved also in educating the community in the ways of the Torah and how to live as Jews in. Uh, in the Holy Land or anywhere else in the diaspora. Now, all of a sudden, move Jews to Alexandria, move Jews to Rome, move Jews like the Apostle Paul to Tarsus. Now, all of a sudden, you've got Jews who want to learn Torah through their family and also who will be exposed in some ways to the ways of the Gentiles. 
they'll learn in Alexandria, uh, they'll learn Greek and they'll learn a little bit of Latin and they'll learn to read the great books uh, that are a part of the Western tradition. And Paul would have been educated probably in Tarsus outside the home as well. So he may have well have picked up some ro typical Roman education. Paul's, Paul would have learned some Homer and Paul would have learned some Virgil uh, and some of the great writings. But I don't, we don't see a lot of traces of this in Paul. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, he then is sent by his family to Jerusalem to sit at the feet of Gamaliel, a great rabbi, where he would have learned oral Torah, the halakha, the, the rulings about how to live as a Jew, how to apply the Torah in the modern world for him. So I, I'm, I'm a minimalist on this. I'm doubtful that, that uh, there was a public education system. There could have been some schools in bigger cities. I doubt very much that Jesus had access to a school in Nazareth. Sure. So what about uh, maybe the status of trade schools and, and education in that sense where somebody is learning to be like Jesus, a carpenter? Was that done yeah. just by the, the, the father, you know, like you mentioned in, in some of those life things in education that was being taught? Or yeah. how, how did, you know, how yeah. that those things fit together in the society? Whenever someone brings up Jesus being a carpenter, <laughs> I, th I think of this funny scene in the Mel Gibson movie where... Yeah. Jesus doesn't think a table with legs has any future. Uh -huh. uh, but, all right, let's just say this, that Jesus, as a general rule, boys learned the trade of their fathers, and they expanded the business of the family home and then assumed the family business as the father aged. The more sons, the more complicated this becomes, or the more expansive the business. So this gets to be uh, just general information. Let us assume that Jesus's father dies when he's young. So Jesus probably learned the tools of being an artisan. Uh, we are not convinced uh, today, scholars are not convinced that was woodworking. Yeah, wasn't it stoneworking? Probably yeah, likely. Uh, you, you work with what you've got. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of trees growing in Nazareth and Sepphoris. And it's very likely, it's possible, I would contend, um, but, but more than, more than just possible, probably just a little bit more than that, that Jesus would have walked daily to Sepphoris, uh, a Roman city just outside of Nazareth, bigger where he would have worked. And that would have meant he would have worked probably with stone. Uh, he could have worked building mosaics. He could have worked building buildings, carving stone, cutting stone, chipping stone, uh, maybe some wood. So I, I would contend that Jesus would have learned this, and if his father died, he would have learned it as an apprentice with another male. Uh, maybe he would have learned some of it through a Roman male, through a Greek male, through a Gentile in Sepphoris. So uh, trades were learned through the family and then through family connections in a community. And they were, that's pretty much consistent between all different sorts of, of trades. And whatever the family was involved with, whether it be stoneworking, artisan work, or like, you know, Paul describes being a, a tent maker uh, and some of these other trades. Yeah, I mean, Paul learned, you know, we don't know. Uh, Paul could have worked with linen because that's famous in the area where Paul grows up in Tarsus. 
or he could have worked with leather. I think the leaning today is he probably worked with leather. Uh, and we don't know when he learned it. He could have learned it uh, because he had to figure out to, to do something that he could do on the road as a missionary, or he may have learned it as a child. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, but Paul would have learned that sort of trade uh, through through his family, uh, through his family connections. Uh, but, you know, I mean, here, here's the thing. Uh, everybody in uh, everybody is more resourceful in the first century. Uh, you you can't go to stores as a, by and large and buy groceries. You can't go to stores and get fluids. So people had vineyards, or they had access to vineyards, or they had friends who had vineyards, and they helped with the vineyards. If they lived near Galilee, like everything gets a little bit simpler. There's water in the sea. Uh, there is fish in the sea. You get up into Nazareth, that's up in the hills. Uh, it's going to take longer. Uh, it's going to take a long time to get to the sea, uh, to the Sea of Galilee, a couple days probably. So uh, you have to be more resourceful. They had to know how to, uh, let's say, transport fish or transport uh, liquids. And so they, they learned to store liquids. Uh, in various ways. So everybody, everybody in a sense, um, realized that they had to provide for themselves. They figured out how to grow, uh, how to have pigeon farms, uh, columbarians, so that they could have uh, meat, uh, you know, or, uh, or pigeons to eat, or doves. Uh, they figured out how to uh, collect water whenever it rained. Every one of these villages learned how to collect water into cisterns. So all these things, you got to realize that people are taking care of themselves. They're not thinking that they can trade with coins mm -hmm. and get everything they need. They need to provide for themselves. Mm -hmm. So they learned how to store grains mm -hmm. uh, for food. Uh, they learned how, yeah, that, that, that sort of thing. And, and every child learned his or her roles in the family production and resources. Yeah, and they they made do with what they had and they figured out how to how to get by. So as we kind of set this foundation of, you know, what was what we know even though we know very little about the, the concepts of education and, and everybody um, across the the spectrum, uh, how do you think this information and research and, and what we do know tells us uh, ab about discipleship as is described mostly, you know, in the Gospels where we see Jesus inviting people to be uh, a disciple. And um, understanding this foundation of, of education, what does that tell us about discipleship? You know, discipleship in the, let's just say, now we'll move to Galilee, we'll move to Jerusalem, we'll move to the Jewish world. Uh, we'll move away from the official educational system to some sort of where we think it's, you know, going to a class and memorizing. Uh, let's remember this, that, that they learned to follow the Torah through their father and through the, the people their father respected and through, let's just say, local male uh, Torah observant people. So uh, Jesus grows up in Galilee. He learns Torah from his father. His father dies. He learns Torah then, or he learns further learns Torah from his mother, who learned from her father and her family. And he learns 
Torah from, let's just say there's some brothers of Joseph around or family members or family members of Mary around. Mm -hmm. So what we're getting, what I'm getting at here is a very important element to Jewish education that funnels directly into discipleship. They learned how to live from others in personal relationships. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus forms followers and he calls people to follow him, he doesn't build a school building in Capernaum or in Nazareth or in Tiberias or Sepphoris. He calls people to be with him and they naturally listen to him because they've learned that you are educated in that sense you are spiritually formed would be a better ca uh, category in personal relationship with people whom you can trust who with people who would be seen as authorities or living examples of torah observance and now jesus is forming uh, not only is he a jew who has learned Torah observance, but he is forming disciples on the basis of his interpretation of the Torah. So Jesus offers, in a sense, a different halakha, a different way of life mm -hmm. for his followers that is deeply rooted in Torah. And we see this perfectly in the Sermon on the Mount. That first chapter of Matthew 5, starting at verse 17, going through verse 48, uh, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, we, we see Jesus quoting scripture, Moses, which is very Jewish thing to do for people who want to be Torah observant and for teachers. Uh, we see him quoting that, but then giving an interpretation of how to follow that Torah, how to follow that instruction. Mm -hmm. And that becomes Jesus's Torah, the Torah of Jesus, that he is inculcating into his followers and calling them to follow if they want to be truly observant in this messianic era that Jesus is bringing in. So let's let's start with this that first of all disciple what we learn from Jewish education discipleship is very personal. You become attached to a master. You become attached the Hebrew word will become uh, and it's Difficult to know if we have this term as a specific title in the first century, uh, a rabbi. But, but clearly, uh, the relationship of his disciples to him is, is that uh, that will become something like a rabbi. The second thing is, so the education is personal. The second thing is, it's rooted in Torah. And then third, it is rooted in interpretation. So Jesus has plugged totally into the Jewish world. He's taught them uh, to get connected to him, follow me. He's taught them to listen to the Torah. You have heard it said. And he's taught them to listen to his interpretation of the Torah as he lives it out. And he lived it out in being merciful, in being compassionate, and being loving. So I believe that Jesus taught his disciples to follow the Torah through the lens of what I call the Jesus Creed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he has this very Jewish expression, 
There is no commandment greater than these. In Matthew, it's slightly different, but it means largely the same thing. From these two commandments, loving God and loving others, all the other commandments hang. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is teaching his disciples to be connected to him, to listen to the Torah, and to follow his love God, love your neighbor as yourself interpretation and lens through which they would understand now how to follow the Torah in the Jewish world. Hmm. Wow, that's a great way to look at it is the you know, personal rooted in Torah and rooted in interpretation. What I think is fascinating is I look at um, you know discipleship taking root today and, and, and how it can and should happen. I feel like uh, the breakdown, if there is a breakdown for us, a lot of times happens in that personal element that we are just so informationally saturated with, with, you know, our iPhones and we can look up anything in a matter of of seconds and, and so much great content and information is available to us. uh, Like I said, the tip of our, our fingers, but what happens a lot of times is, is we place that emphasis importance on the information and just, you know, learning a lot about and and even memorizing and and knowing scripture can go that far. But we don't always have that guide with us to be able to experience and walk through the transformation that happens in personal life on life discipleship that Jesus obviously put it as the foundation and core. And uh, if it's to take root, I think in our culture and and, in our churches today, um, that personal element has to be one of the foundational elements. Well, you know, Chaz, you're so right. And and here's here's a, a, a concern I have. There's a lot of a lot of Christians today who look at their pastor as their pastor. Mm-hmm. They call their pastor their pastor, but they don't know that person. They've never met with that person. They may have shaken their hands. Um, and then uh, we create these churches, mega churches, and I'm not against mega churches, but so you got to hear me out. And that is where the fundamental relationship people have with their pastor is to sit in a pew with a thousand or two thousand or twenty thousand others and listen to a mesmerizing multi uh, media talk and to learn. Now that that turns spirituality and spiritual formation and education into the downloading of information from a person talking into a person sitting. Mm-hmm. Now the the best megachurches, and I'm thinking here uh, right now. I'll just use one illustration because I'm familiar with it. Is Andy Stanley? They have a huge church, mm-hmm. but Andy Stanley has told me personally, and former pastors there who are now friends of mine who are pastoring in other places have told me that they envision that North Point understands itself as small groups that gather to thousands of small groups that gather together on Sunday. Mm-hmm. I, I like that because okay, then it's not just a talking head. And Andy is really worth listening to, and Bill Hybels and Rick Warren and Craig Goschel and all these big pastors, Adam Hamilton. They're, you know, you, you listen to these people because mm-hmm. they are great speakers. But that is inadequate according to a first century understanding of discipleship. That is why small groups where you can have not just the collection of one another with one another, 
but also maybe someone who's responsible in that small group to be connected to, let's say, the teaching ministries of the church so that there's a little bit of a pastoral or mentoring relationship. I think in a lot of churches, Chaz, you you can speak to your own church, although I don't want you to get in trouble, (laughs) uh, is that uh, there's a mentoring relationship, let's say, when a person becomes a Christian, and let's say it lasts for three months, six months, nine months, a year, maybe two years, and then it just sort of people are left to themselves to go out and work in, in small groups, and it's all a small group has no pastoral relationship to the larger collection of the church. Uh, th- this is not the ideal. We need, we need spiritual mentors uh, with whom we can work, who can look after us, uh, who can take care of what we, sometimes my friend Mindy, Mindy Caliguire called soul care. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that what we learn from Jesus is both a is both uh, approximated and practiced in our churches today, but sometimes woefully lacking for some people. And that is, it's personal, it's based on knowledge of Scripture, and it's based on, let's say, the application or the living out embodiment, uh, the progressive realization of those scriptures in our world through the through the ways of wisdom. And I think that we can only do that through personal relationships. Yeah, without a doubt. And, you know, like you said, I do work at a mega church, Parkview Christian Church in Orland Park. And, um, you know, we use that saying, I think it is even an Andy Stanley line about, um, you know, we believe that you're not going to grow spiritually unless you're connected relationally. And so uh, we fully believe that circles in, you know, our small group atmosphere are better than sitting in rows. And really, you know, what happens on the week weekend. Um, it, it, and I say this a lot, it's not the church. It, it, this weekend service isn't the church. It's an expression of the church and, you know, in our worship and our um, anchoring and, you know, who we are at, as the followers of Jesus. But really where so much of the, the transformation happens uh, is in relationship. And, you know, it, there are all sorts of different ways to structure it. You know, we have um, our our methods that we use to try to um, get people connected relationally, and um, you know, having larger events that are on ramps to be able to to get them into groups. And then when people are are in groups and have content that that we provide, um, you know, we have coaches and overseers who are checking in and 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 watching over how how the groups are are doing so that they can have. Um, you know, that, like you said, pastoral care, they can have um, that discipleship, that encouragement and that influence that um, trickles down. And and for us, you know, is trying to bring as many people as we can into a further discipling relationship with Jesus um, so more people can know about it. But, you know, I was at your church one time teaching on a Saturday. Yeah. And I, I told Casey at the time, I, I've not been in many churches where I thought people were more attuned to how to read the Bible. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were looking at the book of James for a whole day, Mm -hmm. and people had great questions. They were pressing how James framed things. They were connecting James to Paul. Of course, that's always a question. Mm -hmm. They were connecting James to the rest of the Bible. They understood about Jewish Christianity, but they understood as well that this has to work itself out in life, so they were asking questions about spiritual formation. You know, there are good things going on there, 
because there's a bit of a theory. And, and I, think you would, I think you would agree with me that the first century theory, personal relationship connected to understanding scripture mm-hmm. and figuring out how to live scripture out in our world today yeah. is central to what goes on in your church. Mm-hmm. And it is central to what, what we need to be doing in churches in order to form disciples of Jesus. Without a doubt, so essential, and it can't happen without it. So, uh, any closing thoughts before uh, we go today? Um, well, I think you've taxed me, but I, <laughs> I really, en- I really think it's important uh, that we not pretend that first-century Judaism was grown-up rabbinic Judaism with all this educational system in place, but rather it was in process. It was growing. It was primitive. But core ideas that go way back in Jewish history were that education took place in the home, and they were very patriarchal, so father was more important. Today, we would, we would definitely emphasize both parents as educational forces for the children. Mm-hmm. But, but we learned something really important here, that for Christian families, discipleship occurs primarily in and through the home, and it leads to the church, and it leads to the community. We cannot rely upon public education to teach our children the ways of God, and we cannot rely exclusively upon our churches to form our children spiritually. It has to take place in the context of the home. And therefore, it's that personal relationship where... uh, It was rather natural uh, for first century disciples of Jesus to want to call him father because they had learned from their own fathers. But Jesus told them not to call anyone else father. We have one father. But that was a natural thing to have to tell the followers of Jesus not to do because it was the instinct. And that is a good reminder for us uh, when we talk about letting the kingdom take root today is we need more parents, fathers and mothers, and older siblings who take personal responsibility for the spiritual formation of everyone in the home. Absolutely. Well, I hope today's conversation has been helpful for you to think through uh, what that can look like in your context, to, to be the ones who are discipling for the sake of Jesus and connecting others to him. So that, as Scott said, uh, the kingdom can take root today as it took root in the first century. Thanks again for joining us. I hope you have a great day. Mm-hmm.